You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome to Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Keith Sanderson, animal advocate, writer, and human companion to Max A. Pooch, canine crusader for animals and the environment. Max and I thank you for joining us, and we dedicate this episode as we dedicate every episode to those amazing people who work to save the lives and or improve conditions of companion, domestic, or wild animals. Our guest today is Zach Smith, Staff Attorney for Natural Resources Defense Council's Marine Mammal Protection Project. He is joining us today to discuss the killing or injuring of hundreds of thousands of marine mammals each year by foreign fisheries and what the U.S. government and American consumers can do about it. However, first we need to take a break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. The new Dyson Animal Backs are powerful bagless upright backings for homes with pets. Air muscle and radio root cyclone technology generates the strongest suction power to powerfully remove dust, dirt, and pet hair from the home or car. To order your Dyson Animal Back, go to DysonDeals.com. DysonDeals.com to order your Dyson Animal Back today. Dyson, music to your ears. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates. I'm your host, Keith Sanderson, and with us today is Zach Smith, spokesperson and attorney for the NRDC. Thank you for joining us, Zach. Thank you. I'm glad to be speaking to you today. I appreciate it. It's great. You know, I heard your media conference last week. And before we get into that, Zach, can you tell us a little bit about the NRDC and what your role is? Sure. The Natural Resources Defense Council, which we call NRDC because it's too much of a mouthful otherwise, is an environmental nonprofit that's been around for about 40 years, initially focusing on some of the basics that were a big problem in the 70s, clean air, clean water. Since that time, our focus on environmental issues has expanded naturally. Now we spend a lot of our time um, still working on clean air, clean water, but also focusing on climate change. But we also do a lot of wildlife and wild places work and serving them. And that's where I fit in. I'm in our Marine Mammal Protection Project. And so I advocate for marine mammal conservation around the world. And I dabble also a little bit in polar bears. A little bit in polar bears. Uh, that's a pretty diverse dabbling, I would say. But uh, what I wanted to talk about is last month, the NRDC sent out a media release saying that the cost of putting seafood on the dinner table was hundreds of thousands of marine mammals that were killed or hurt by foreign commercial fishing each year. That's a staggering number, Zach. Uh, in fact, it's, it's not sustainable, is it? I mean, that's going to cause a lot of species to go extinct at that rate. Well, and absolutely, yes. So the, the figure is over 650,000 marine mammals are killed or seriously injured every year in commercial fisheries around the world. And while some species and populations can withstand the loss of tens of thousands of members of their population, 
on a yearly basis, many species just cannot um, suffer the take of even just one individual more. And we identify some species that are particularly being harmed. So it's a big concern, and we work a lot in the United States to bring down our bycatch. We have a regime in place to, to try to stop marine mammals from being caught in fishing gear, and we should try to export those practices around the world to bring down that number. Yeah, because I think that you said 91% of seafood consumed in the United States is imported and nearly every foreign fish product sold in the U.S. violates a federal marine mammal protection law. I mean, that's incredible. What species of foreign wild-caught fish are consumed by Americans that most impact sea mammals? So Americans love shrimp. And if you look at kind of the top consumed seafoods, they are things like shrimp, tuna, tilapia. I think catfish is in the top 10. Salmon, of course, crab and lobster, those are the kinds of seafoods that Americans love. And many of those are wild-caught. Now, some seafood products, of the 91% of imported seafood, about half of that is wild-caught, which has those issues associated with it of harming marine mammals. The other half is farmed, which has different environmental issues, but, but not the same kind with respect to catching marine mammals, like whales and dolphins. As far as, as the particular marine mammals that are harmed, it's very difficult to try to categorize harm to species in the sense of, of pitting them against each other because these quickly turn into kind of subjective judgment calls as to value of species. I do know that our importation of certain products from certain countries is impacting species like the North Atlantic right whale, which is harmed by Canadian lack of good management practices when it comes to crab and lobster. There are the imports of tuna products from Western and Central Asia and the Indian Ocean, as well as Southeast Asia, which impacts dolphins around the world, or in those areas, I should say. And that's about, if some fisheries are responsible for tens of thousands of deaths every year. New Zealand sea lion from squid fisheries there, squid imports in the United States from New Zealand. The Mediterranean sperm whale. I mean, the list, the list does go on and on. If you look at a region of the world, there isn't a country, there isn't a region that's off the hook. And, and strangely enough, some of the wealthiest areas of the world, some of the wealthiest countries aren't doing a good job, and they certainly have the resources to do better. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, going back to lobster. So, if I see, you know, in the in the grocery store, uh, Maine lobster, that may not be from Maine. Is that what you're telling me? You know, if you see Maine lobster, it is definitely from Maine. If it's been labeled Maine lobster, it has to be, you know, caught by Maine fishermen from Maine. And those fishermen will have followed, well, I should say they're operating under the U.S. regime to reduce the bycatch of the North Atlantic right whale. And the North Atlantic right whale, there's only about 500, the numbers are, people always debate it, but there's probably only about 500 of those animals left. They have, strangely enough, they got their name the right whale because during international whaling, when whaling was going on around the world in the, in the 19th century, they were the right whale to kill because they were easy. They stayed at the surface a lot. They are not deep divers. They spend a lot of their time at the surface. So they were the right whale to go after. They were the easy whale to go after. And the name stuck with them as the right whale, which is kind of an interesting fact about them. But the scientists believe that just the loss of one or two right whales from unnatural causes could mean the end of that population that, that has been, you know, operating along our East Coast for hundreds of years that people have enjoyed seeing, and it would be a tragedy to lose that species, that population. 
Now, it's a claim of the NRDC that irresponsible foreign fisheries put American fisheries at an unfair cost advantage because our legislation, the federal legislation, requires extra cost burden. Can you explain that? I mean, what kind of handicap do American, say, shrimpers have compared to foreign shrimp fisheries? Right. So basically, the United States has a regime on the book that says all seafood sold in the United States, be it imported or domestically produced, if it's wild caught, it should be operating under a regime to reduce bycatch and to take all of the steps that are possible to, to bring down the numbers. In the United States, that translates into different things for different areas. Can you explain what bycatch is? Yeah, so bycatch is, is any time the animal is hooked entangled or trapped in fishing gear. And it can also be another fish that isn't the target species. So if you're, you throw out your net for tuna, you bring in tuna and, and something else, like a swordfish gets caught in there, perhaps. The swordfish is considered bycatch because it wasn't what you were trying to catch. So would be any seabirds, any sea turtles, or any marine mammal, a dolphin, a whale, or a sea lion, for example. So that's considered bycatch. It's not the target catch. Bycatch of marine mammals in the United States is controlled by our Marine Mammal Protection Act and says that we should limit the, the amount of bycatch that occurs, this, catch, this entanglement in fisheries. So in the U.S., we operate under a regime, and, and fishers have to spend resources to make sure that they don't catch marine mammals. In some ways, like shrimpers that you were explaining like one way they limit the catch of animals is that they modify the kind of traps that they use or the trawls so that they have almost a almost like an exit hatch, so to speak, for some for larger animals that would get in there, like a sea turtle or potentially a dolphin. I think it's mostly targeted for sea turtles, the one that I'm thinking of in my head. And those special kinds of nets cost extra money to construct. And so there's an investment that they make. Now, foreign fisheries, like shrimp trawlers in Mexico, for example, who go after shrimp, but also sometimes catch a species a population called the vaquita, which is a very rare, about 200 animals left. They're not taking those same steps, even though they're required to under Mexican law. They're not taking the same steps to make those kind of investments to protect the vaquita or other marine mammals to be caught in their nets. And so that means that when they sell their product into the United States, the cost of their product doesn't include any investment in the technology of saving marine mammals. And of course, that technology can mean other things or the means, we should say, because it can also be time and area closures. So it could be you don't fish during certain times of year. And that has a cost to U.S. fishermen if they can't be out there fishing because they have to protect marine mammals because maybe that's the time of year where they're breeding or they're mating or there are a lot of them congregating. That's a loss of resources for them. So all this adds up for them to be at a, at a disadvantage against foreign competitors. I see. Hey, out of curiosity, now, I think I'm still right, but lobsters are caught in pots. How would that affect the right whale? So lobsters and crabs are caught in pots, and what they do is, um, I think we, you know, the traditional idea is that there'll be a single pot that is put on a line with a buoy on top, and then the pot is thrown over the boat, and it sinks to the bottom, and then they come the next day and pick it up. Well, they know where that pot is, because that pot is connected to the surface with a line with a buoy on top, and it's actually that line that is the entanglement danger for North Atlantic right whales, that as they swim through um, an area, that line will get caught in their mouths, 
it will get caught on their tails or it can get caught around one of their fins. And there are documented, I think there's a crazy statistic out there that something around over 80% of all right whales have signs of entanglement on them. They've got scratches or other, not, and this is more than scratches for them because obviously entanglement can lead to death if it drags them down. But you'll see pictures of right whales that are actually dragging lobster pots behind them as they swim through the ocean. And there's only so long you can do that as an animal before before it gets too tiring or cuts into your skin so deeply that you get infected and die. Wow, that would be like a human walking around uh, dragging weights or something. I mean, you certainly can't do that forever. What do they do to, again, out of curiosity, what do the American lobstermen do to uh, help reduce this? Yeah, they take several steps. Some of them are varying. I don't want to suggest that, the, that, the, that it's a perfect system in the United States because we're still trying to work out how to save the North Atlantic right well. And it doesn't look like necessarily everything we're trying is working, but at least we're trying, which I think is the big distinguishing factor between what the U.S. is doing and what Canada is doing. A lot of people would say, well, you're, there's still a lot of harm happening to right whales from U.S. fishers, and that's true. But they are operating under regime and rules, and those rules include those pots that I was talking about, the lines that there's a break point on them that is actually quite low, so that if a certain amount of pressure is put on the line, it will break. So that means that, like, so if the right whale, if it gets caught in it and it starts to drag a little bit, the line will break, and then there's a hope then that there will be a greater chance of, of the rope just becoming disentangled and floating away if you're not dragging the lobster pot anymore at that point. And the other thing that they do is nowadays with, with kind of the commercialization of lobster fishing to the extent it has been, they'll drop lines that go down to one lobster pot and then they'll connect maybe even a hundred of them all on one line on the ocean floor. So there'll be a pot then they'll throw off the side of another pot, another pot, and all of those are connected by a line. And that line in between them can float, not all the way to the surface, but it can float within the water column. And if white whales swim through that, they can get entangled too. So, American fishers operate under a rule that that line has to be sunk or it has to, um, yeah, it has to like lay at the floor of the ocean along with the pots. So it has to be weighted slightly. Those things cost money anytime you're talking about gear. So those are the kind of steps they take. They're not perfect. I don't want people to think that if they buy American lobster or Maine lobster that there isn't a harm occurring to North Atlantic right whales. There is, unfortunately. But again, our regulators and fisheries are trying to work with fishers to solve that problem. And that does not happen in Canada. That's amazing. That's amazing. Zach, we need to take a break right now. But when we come back, I want to hear what you believe uh, can be done by the federal government to do something about reducing this carnage. We'll be right back. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Tim Link, animal communicator and pet expert and host of Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have you ever wanted to know what your pet is really thinking? Do you want to find out if they truly understand what you're trying to tell them? Ever wish you could build a better understanding and closer relationship with your pet? Well, now you can. Learning to communicate with animals is a four-part on-demand workshop. 
In the workshop, you'll learn the essential techniques that are necessary to communicate with animals, including what is animal communication, breathing correctly to achieve the perfect state to communicate with your animals at a deeper level, using guided meditation exercises and method to communicate with animals, and how to send and receive information from your animals. So if you're wanting to learn how to communicate and connect with your animals at a deeper level, visit PetLifeRadio.com forward slash workshop and purchase and download Learning to Communicate with Animals. You'll be glad you did. Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Gansert, President and CEO of American Humane Association, the country's first national humane organization, here to tell you about our new show, Be Humane, on Pet Life Radio. Each week, we'll be bringing you the latest news and issues affecting our animal friends, and we'll also be bringing you interviews with Hollywood's biggest animal advocates, here to share tales about their pets and what they're doing to promote a more humane world. Our own highly experienced staff and friends the organization will also join us each week to share what they're up to in the animal world. I hope you'll stop by. Until then, let's always remember to be humane. Every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Pet <laughs> Welcome back to Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates. Before we went on our break, our guest Zach Smith was going to explain what can be done by the federal government to rectify the high kill of and the carnage of uh, marine mammals by foreign fisheries. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Zach? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why NRDC, we put out a report um, earlier this month on this exact issue, because it turns out that there is a provision of law within the United States that has never been enforced. And that law says that you're actually not allowed, we're, we as Americans, the government is not a- allowed to let foreign fish or fish products come into the United States that weren't caught using methods that meet U.S. standards for protecting marine mammals. And so that means that everyone should be on the same playing field, that the U.S. fishers should be taking steps to protect marine mammals. And if you want your product to come into the United States from Canada, from New Zealand, from China, that those products also need to be meeting U.S. standards, so it's an even playing field. And that law has never been enforced. It's been on the books for about 40 years. And it's not just that it's, that it's on the books in the sense of there are regulations and they just haven't been telling countries that there aren't even regulations out there. So what we're, we're asking is that the government finally enforce this law, that they put out regulations detailing how they would enforce it, and putting all the countries of the world who export fish to the United States on notice that this regulation is coming. You only have a limited amount of time to get your practices up to speed. And if you don't, then our market will be closed to you. You will no longer be able to sell your products here. And using the power of the American consumers who do import, I think customs information indicates that it's about almost $17 billion, and that's wholesale prices, right? That's what you report to customs like you do when you're on an international flight, and they say, you know, how much did you pay for whatever? You know, people lowball that, and they say, oh, it was this amount or whatever. So that's not the price of lobster that you're paying when you go to the the nice restaurant. That's the price of the lobster that they're reporting to customs just to bring it into the United States. So it's a big industry. There's a lot of money involved. Americans um, love seafood. So we have the power to impact those numbers around the world and to bring them down by demanding that foreign fishers meet U.S. standards if we just enforce this law. 
And I should imagine that American fishermen and fisheries would be more willing to uh, follow U.S. law. I'm not saying that they don't, but I mean it's it's a lot easier to, to do something if you know your competition is doing it. Yeah, I think that it would change. In certain respects, it changes the dynamics um, with respect to the conversation that takes place between regulators and U.S. fishermen. Because right now, they're under an extreme amount of pressure price-wise, their products in the market. And that has to be part of their thought process of every time the government comes to them and says, we want you to take extra steps to protect marine mammals. The idea that um, saying, well, and by the way, these extra steps are now going to be required of your competitors should get more buy-in from the U.S. industry and should reward them for doing the right thing. And again, not all U.S. fisheries are perfect. I would hate for everyone to say that, to think that all problems are solved by buying U.S. fisheries. As you noted, there's a lot of other issues going on with U.S. fisheries as far as sustainability that don't have anything to do with marine mammals. There's problems with sea turtles. There's problems with the fisheries themselves being overfished. So people have to think about all of those things when they're making consumer choices. They have information available to them, which we can talk about if you want to now or or, or not. Before we get to that, I did want to bring up one thing that I noticed that I found... Oh, I won't say unique, but uh, perhaps a bit unusual that during your media conference, you actually had a representative from the uh, Shrimpers Association as a spokesperson. And finding, even though I'm sure, you know, there's not total agreement between the shrimp fisheries and the NRDC, but finding a common talking point and working together seems maybe a good way to go about this. Am I correct in that? No, I think that you're absolutely correct. And A.C. Cooper, who is the person you spoke to, he's the vice president of the Louisiana Shrimp Fisheries. And he's a great guy. He's been operating for decades, you know, down there. And he really knows firsthand the sacrifices that some U.S. fishermen make to comply with the different kind of laws that save marine mammals, save sea turtles, save seabirds. And there is a real opportunity for conservationists on this issue to work with U.S. fisheries. It does get complicated very quickly. For example... It's my understanding that most Spain fishermen drop off their lobster, so to speak, when it's hot, when it's taken off the boat. It's done so in Canada, and it's processed in Canada, you know, packaged and whatnot, and then exported then to the United States. Well, that would be considered, if it was labeled, product of Canada. You wouldn't necessarily see that it's Maine lobster. And so you can imagine situations where some U.S. fishermen, especially a lot of U.S. fishermen do send their products overseas to places like China and Southeast Asia countries to do processing. Once it leaves the U.S., once it's processed somewhere else, it's some other country's product at that point. And so I can see situations where we wouldn't always be on the same page on this issue. But I think overall, this is something that everyone will be able to get behind. This is good for U.S. fishermen at the, at the very fisher level, at that very level, people out on the boats trying to earn a living for their families. They understand the pressures of prices and trying to comply with these laws. This will benefit them, and um, we look forward to working with them if possible to move this forward. Well, that's great because, again, as I said, I found it a bit unusual because so many times there's uh, a big antagonism factor between a conservation or an environmental organization and then industries that may be affected by what they're trying to do. 
And it just seems that talking, because a lot of times these people, like you said, are small businesses, they're, they're trying to earn income for family. And, you know, it's a very emotional point for them, just like uh, the environment is a very emotional for environmentalists. And to get together and talk and uh, have a common goal and objective, I, you know, I really find that NRDC on that point, I think that's great. Yeah, and I've very been very glad to see there hasn't been any opposition to this since this report has been has come out. The opposition I've seen is from Canadians who say, "Oh, you know, don't say that we're so bad. We're not really that bad." And and of course, I can say, "Well, we base all of our findings on peer-reviewed scientific journal studies." So if you have problems, you have problems with the underlying science, and and those are different issues. But there hasn't been any pushback from U.S. fishermen. There hasn't been pushback. Now, there was a letter from Congress that was sent recently to the National Marine Fisheries Service who's working on these regulations. Just last year, several Congress people, one of these dear colleague letters that they circulate, saying it's time to enforce these regulations. And they did that working with swordfish fisheries and other fisheries around the United States. So U.S. fishers are on board, for the most part, with the enforcement of this regulation. And I do think it's an opportunity for us to sit down and be on the same page. And through that maybe we can have a better understanding of where we all come from on other issues as well. Your previous point about how it becomes complex, you know, giving the example of the Maine lobster caught in Maine but processed in Canada, you know, makes it really tough for the American consumer. Um, I mean, there's really two questions, isn't it? If I'm buying something processed, that really complicates the question. But even if I'm just buying a straight product, say lobsters, let's use that as an example, how can I... I determine whether they're U.S. or foreign caught. Right. So there's actually country of origin labeling requirements in the United States. So any fish product that you purchase in a market has to indicate where it was from. And if it if it hasn't been processed at all, like you've indicated, like you set up the example, then it has to also include whether or not it was wild caught or farmed. Now, no lobster is farmed as of yet. They're probably looking for a way to do it, but they haven't figured it out yet. So for lobster, it will say that it's wild caught, and then it will say which country it's from. So you do have that information available to you. Now, at restaurants, you don't, because they don't usually list that. People should be asking their servers, well, where does this food come from? And of course, this is about everyone getting more education just in general about understanding where all of their food comes from. You know, does the restaurant source locally? Does the restaurant, you know, where do, do they go to the local farmer's market to purchase most of their products as far as, you know, vegetables and whatnot? How are they sourcing their food? And they can't always answer those questions, but at least we're starting a conversation about that. Now, there are other tools available to us overall for some of the other issues besides marine mammals, which some people, you know, would say that are even more important as far as fisheries collapse and whatnot. The Monterey Bay Aquarium has something called Seafood Watch. I think people have heard about it before. They produce little cards. They have apps for people's phones. And it will tell you whether a food is, should be, a seafood should be avoided or whether it should be eaten with caution or whether it, you know, is good to go, that you're good with this. And they actually study different fish products from around the world and the United States. And some U.S. fisheries don't make the mark because of impacts to sea turtles, seabirds, or the fisheries themselves, like I said before, overfishing. They also look at marine mammals. They don't look at marine mammals the same way that the Marine Mammal Protection Act does, which is stricter. So in that sense, they're, they're not perfect. But these are two different things people can do. They can look at Seafood Watch and learn about the fishery overall and its impacts. And once they go, you know what, I've got a sustainable fish that I'm going to look for, 
that lobster is caught sustainably, then they can look, well, is it bottomy? Was it produced in the United States or was it produced somewhere else like Canada? Oh, that's great. Now, that's Seafood Watch, and that's done by the Monterey, California Aquarium? Yeah, the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And I think if you just put in, you know, your search engine, Seafood Watch, it should come up, you know, almost immediately. And they have a lot of different information. And like I said, they have these great apps. You know, so if you're out at a restaurant or if you're at a market and you're like, oh, gee, I really do like snapper or I really like cod. And you put it in there and, and it will say, you know, well, not cod from this country because, you know, they have horrible practices, X and Y. And sometimes that includes the United States, like I said. So that looks at sustainability. And then you add on this other layer of, well, what can I do to protect whales and dolphins? And that's the extra layer that people have to do a little bit more work with, which is just until this law is enforced, there's no way of knowing whether or not any imported product is operating under a regime to bring down these numbers. We do know that U.S. fishers operate under that regime. It's not a perfect regime, but at least they work at it, and we should support those efforts until we enforce this law. This is a little off. It has nothing to do with seafood or the impact, but would this act also, should that be enforced against like captive uh, sea mammals, like some of these amusement parks and at resorts and things? Well, actually, there are different provisions of the Marine Mammal Protection Act that cover the importation of live caught animals for purposes of display which is, you know, always nice where they say scientific research display and then in places, of course, that are like these marine amusement parks. It's really less display and it's more of a show. But but nonetheless, there are specific rules that require them to get import permits. They have to show that they came from populations that are doing very well and aren't under threat. And actually in the United States, I think for the last several decades, those permits have not been issued, um, in part because the industry isn't looking for them. Places like SeaWorld and other um, marine parks, they don't really do live-caught importations anymore, in part because it looks bad. It's not the best consumer relations, you know, if people know that the killer whale that they have was taken from its mother, you know, somewhere um, in another part of the world. So it doesn't happen that much, but it is a tool that we have. And, and that's and the reason why it doesn't happen that often in the U.S. anymore is because this law is on the book. So, so yeah, we, we have those tools and we, we have used them. Well, that's good to know. And I do want to ask you uh, one question. I ask all my guests this question, Zach, and that's with all the human misery in the world. How can you justify spending time, money, and other resources advocating for animals? Yeah, I think for me that's a very easy question to answer. I think it's a challenging question, and, and it raises challenging questions. But for me, there is a human story. And by that, I almost mean like humanity and, and the place of humans in the world. And part of that human story is the way that we interact with our environment and the way that we interact with species. And these species, many of them are suffering because of the human story, because of the way that we go out and catch seafood, for example, because of the way that we are changing the world that they live in through climate change and just habitat modification. So the human story, we can't look at ourselves in isolation. We're having impacts, and we can't walk away from what we're doing to the planet. And, of course, there's just the larger issue of I don't want the human story to just be about humans either because part of my story is my interaction with animals that I love. And so for me, it's important to protect that because it's very difficult for me to draw that line. I do agree that there's a lot of misery that's very specific to humans, and we need to work on those issues as well. 
but there's a larger story overall of, of how we see ourselves in the world and our relationship with, with the animals that we're impacting. And I think that that's part of our story and part of our the misery that needs to be uh, addressed. Well, that's a great answer, Zach. And uh, now, where can I learn more about the NRDC and specifically about helping to end the slaughter of sea mammals by foreign fishermen? Yeah, well, we wouldn't be worth our salt if we didn't have a website, um, which is nrdc.org. And you can go there and learn about NRDC generally. On this particular campaign, I believe if you go to nrdc.org backslash save a whale, so just all one word, save a whale, you should learn all about this foreign bycatch provision, this, this catching of marine mammals in foreign fisheries, all the steps that can be taken both to help pressure the government to enforce the rules, but also to, again, learn about what you can do as a consumer to make choices so that you're not hurting marine mammals when you're purchasing seafood. Well, thank you, Zach. We've run out of time, and this has really been an education. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I want to thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. I would love to talk about this all day long, but I know that everyone's got other things to do as well. So that's why it makes it even more special to me to have this time, and, and thank you so much. You're welcome. And Maxi Pooch gives you and all those at NRDC five big tail-wagging woofs for the work you're doing, and please keep us posted on any news on this issue or other issues, because we're always eager to hear, you know, what animal advocates are doing to make the planet a better place. Well, thank you very much, and I appreciate your work as well. Getting these stories out there is very important, and um, it's all part of it's all part of our work. Thank you. You're welcome. We want to thank you, our listeners, for spending your valuable time with us. You're all fantastic, and we hope you tell your friends about Awesome Animal Advocates. And a special thanks to Mark Winter, co-founder and executive producer of Pet Life Radio, and our sponsors for making this episode of Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates possible. I'm Keith Sanderson, host and creator of Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates, saying thank you to all those animal advocates who work so hard on behalf of those who can't speak for themselves. Max A. Pooch gives them five big tail-wagging woofs. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.